All right, turn to Daniel 9. Daniel chapter 9. A lot of you would not be surprised to know that in a former life I was a cowboy. But you would be surprised to know that in that same former life, Little was a cowgirl. And I have pictures of Little barrel racing and goat roping. And a lot of y'all don't even know what goat roping is. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because we're going to look at uh, what Bo Gray referred to me this week as the greatest prayer in the Bible. I thought that he nailed it like that. It is literally when you think of prayers in Scripture, uh, I don't know what specific prayers you might think of. You know, we went through the Lord's Prayer recently. We did the Sermon on the Mount series. A lot of cool prayers in the Bible. But there's a prayer that stands out in my mind from outside of Scripture that I've thought about a lot. And it was when Little and I were, were the first few years we were married, we would go to this one rodeo every year that was on a circuit close to us. And there was this announcer that would be at this rodeo and he would say this really cool prayer. And I can still remember components to that prayer. Now, he said the same prayer every year. So he had memorized this thing, but it was awesome. You know, like if, if it's truth, it's good, you know. And, um, and, I, and, and in my life, I can remember times where I've prayed uh, a very specific prayer, maybe a prayer of Typically, if you can remember a prayer that you've prayed, it's probably a prayer where you're begging God to do something. Maybe you're begging him to spare somebody's life. Maybe you're begging him to help you not fail a test, you know, and, and uh, in school. I, I, like, um, even though I wasn't a Christian in high school, I prayed a lot, waiting outside of the principal's office. And, and so, um, and one of the things we'll look at is the fact that, that prayer is such an interesting thing because uh, that we'll look at it when you, when you study prayer as Christians. It's interesting because we pray in the name of Jesus and we pray very specifically through Jesus. The Bible teaches we do that because he is our intercessor and he's our high priest. And so in the New Testament, there's this, there's this uh, really cool doctrine that we are what's, what the Bible calls a priesthood of believers, which means we are priests, which means we can pray to God the Father, uh, among other things. And, and it's, it's what, when the Scripture talks about us being priests, it's, it's in the line of Jesus being our high priest. It's pointing us to a deeper doctrine that Jesus is the one that advocates, us bef- advocates on our behalf before the Father and intercedes on our behalf before the Father. I've told a story often in youth camp about Little and I sitting in an um, uh, airport in San Francisco, which... You used to have to go to San Francisco to see crazy. Now you just got to drive over to Asheville. But uh, I was sitting in, uh, we're sitting in the airport, and um, this guy, man, I was watching this guy. He's making me nervous, and he was out there. He was, he was dressed kind of crazy, and he was talking to himself a lot. You got to be careful. People talk to themselves a lot. A little bit's okay. Um, we all do that, right? Um, but <clears throat> no? Okay. So um, this guy's talking to himself, and I'm watching this guy, and I end up in this conversation with him. And there's a point where, and I love to look for the right time to drop the bomb on somebody that I'm a pastor. Because I don't, you, you have to be a pastor to appreciate this, but everything changes. You either become their priest or you've got the plague and they want to get away from you. Like people have such funny misconceptions or maybe preconceived ideas, or maybe they've had a bad experience. But I'll, I'll never forget that guy, uh, when I told him I was a pastor, he literally dropped down on his knee, on one knee, in front of me and said, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, uh, okay, first, uh, and, and you get up, you need, to, you need to stand up, man. This is really, this is really weird. And, uh, and then I had a conversation with this guy about, like, 
whatever that tradition that he came out of, there's this concept or this mindset, this, this, this poor teaching that we need human priests to advocate on our behalf. You predominantly see that in the Roman Catholic Church. As a Christian, you have been given an advocate with the Father his name is Jesus. So when Jesus saves you and washes you in his blood and puts his spirit in you and seals us by that spirit, the scripture will teach us in Romans 8 that literally the spirit groans within us with murmurings that sometimes are even too deep for words. Have you ever had that experience where you're so, you feel like you're so connected to God, but you don't even have words in that moment? There's a, a worship of connectivity that's coming from within your, like the deepest part of your soul. Daniel had that like all the time. And when Daniel prays, there's a lot that we can learn. And so I want to open the scripture tonight. We're going to focus on the prayer of Daniel. There's a prayer, um, and then there's a visit from an angel, which is pretty cool. And then there's a prophecy at the end. We're going to try to move through it as quickly as possible. I will now start my timer. Um, and so uh, didn't time the intro. All right, so um, Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of uh, Ahasuerus, by descent, a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. So, first thing is that uh, we get the timeline, we get or we get the setting here. Um, and so, you've noticed over the last two weeks, um, this was pointed out two weeks ago in uh, chapter seven, that we went from chapter six, which was the den of lions, under this king, King Cyrus, and then in chapter seven we went back in time to a time under the last. Uh, Babylonian king and so there's a little bit of time skip and jump in the middle of the story here because we're covering in 12 chapters 80, 80 or 90 years of time 80 or 90 years of this this guy Daniel's life and so this is giving us a time so this is in the first year that the Babylonian kingdom has fallen and the Persian kingdom has risen to power now here's why that's so important because timelines in the Bible are very important they're important, especially when you start to unpack and study prophecy, because if you're a Christian who, who deals with doubt, one of the things that I've found to anchor my faith in truth is to look at how faithful God is to his prophetic word. So like when God makes a, a prophecy through, the, through a prophet, and you can watch that prophecy come to fulfillment, that's very reassuring for our faith. And so understanding that this is happening at the time that this Persian king is coming into power. That's important for what happens in verse 2. Verse 2, in the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So what's he talking about? Well, Daniel goes into his study, and he's having his quiet time. Now, we've already learned that Daniel's a guy who spends time in prayer. He spends time with the Lord. He spends time in God's Word. And so he's reading in the, the book of Jeremiah, and specifically he's reading in Jeremiah chapters 29, and most theologians and commentators think a little bit in 25. And he's reading something, you know, this is crazy, something Jeremiah wrote 70 years prior. Okay, I'll read it to you. It's in Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, Jeremiah 29 is a uh, real familiar passage. At least one of the verses in there is real familiar. Uh, most of us are, are familiar with Jeremiah 29, 11. But let's read that in the context of four or five verses. Jeremiah 29, and we'll go verses 10 through 14. This is what, so, so we're right now sort of entering into Daniel's quiet time. In Daniel 9, verse 2, First year of King Cyrus, he sits down, and y'all listen, 
this is what he reads. Now, I want you to let that set in. We, in 2021, are reading the exact same words that Daniel read in his quiet time, 500 years before the time of Christ. That should be a pow moment for us as Christians. You know, like that... The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord remains forever and is unchanging and, and will never go away. So we're entering into Daniel's quiet time with him, and here's what he studied that morning. I don't know if they had coffee. They probably had tea. Probably had some tea over there in that part of the world. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. Now we're going back to before Israel is car- or Judah is carried into captivity to the Babylonians. And Jeremiah had written, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you hope, to give you future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore you. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Daniel reads this, and there's this moment where God speaks to him through his word. And Daniel gets really excited because he's doing the math in his mind. And he's going, okay, Jeremiah wrote this 70 years ago. And 70 years ago, he wrote... In prophecy that 70 years from that point, God was going to bring his people out of exile and bring them back to Jerusalem and restore them to their rightful place in Jerusalem. Three observations from Daniel's quiet time that I want you to, that I want you to think about. The first observation is this. The prophecy is incredibly accurate. When you read Jeremiah's prophecies and you lay that over against uh, the story of Daniel and what we've studied, and then you lay that over against uh, secular uh, sources of history from this time period, Jeremiah's prophecy is, is incredibly accurate, which should strengthen our faith to know that God wrote something and said in 70 years, here's what's going to happen, and then it happened. And so, so it, it should bolster our faith in the fact that God is sovereign. Second observation is this. There is new revelation in Old Scripture. There is new revelation in Old Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that the Scripture changes. It doesn't mean that we're going to come along like uh, Joseph Smith did or like um, other false prophets that have come along and said, hey, there's something new that God's showing me that he didn't reveal to Jesus and the apostles or the prophets. I'm, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about have you ever had that experience where you open the Word of God? This, many of us have had this, this experience as we've gone through Daniel. I've had dozens of conversations where people have said, the story of Daniel's coming alive to me over the last six, eight, seven, eight nine weeks now in a way that it never has. We're learning things we've never seen before. Why? Because there's always new revelation in old scripture. That's why if you read the Bible through once, it's good to read it through twice. And if you read it through twice, it's good to read it through again. And you can read it and read it and read it and never mind the depths of scripture out of the, the, the word of God. There's, there's going to be something for us no matter how many times we read a passage. And then the last thing that we see is that when we spend time in God's Word, submitting ourselves to God's Word, it will trigger in us the mechanism that God has built into us as spiritual people indwelt by His Holy Spirit to then pray. 
and respond. And prayer is praise. And so we read the scripture and we respond to that in prayer. You'll see this pattern in Daniel's life. And so Daniel's going to go into um, a really cool prayer. And he says this in verse 3, he postures himself for the prayer. Now notice the posture of Daniel as he's preparing for this. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, this is, this is important, I think, for us to understand a couple of cultural, uh, like textual, contextual um, facts here. One is, you'll often read in the Old Testament that someone would put sackcloth and ash, they'd put ash on their head, they'd, put their, uh, they'd, they'd clothe themselves in sackcloth. This was a symbol of lamentation. So it's a symbol of mourning. So in one sense, it's a symbol of humility. So he's humbling himself before the Lord. But in another sense, it's, y'all, this is a very visual, visceral, and cerebral act of lamentation before the Lord. As As Scripture penetrates your heart, you will be moved to deep emotional experiences and deep cerebral experiences god will give you thoughts and thought processes and things that will that will be revealed to you that you've never thought or seen before he'll take you to places emotionally where things will be stirred and moved in you that like you like wow what just happened and daniel in this moment with the lord does what he always does he postures himself in humility but he 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 postures himself in a position of lamentation What is lamentation? It's grieving and mourning, and and it's grieving and mourning under the weight of sin and under the weight of God's judgment or under the weight of the brokenness of humanity. And so he comes into the presence of God. He reads the word. He's moved to conviction by the word. The word of God, may, may, may we be people that the word of God comes alive in us. There's a professor of New Testament theology at University of North Carolina Chapel Hill called Bart Ehrman. I don't know if he's still there or not. Bo, correct me if, he, if he's not, but is he st- you know if he's still there, Bo? Bart Ehrman? Still there. Bart Ehrman, uh, is, is, he, he, um, he uh, deconstructed before deconstructing was cool. He deconstructed before deconstruction was woke, okay? So he like, he went that way Many decades ago, he was a Christian who abandoned the faith, but he still holds a chair at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the religion department, and he teaches New Testament, but he's an atheist. And he even goes so far in some interviews and papers that he's written to reject the very existence of Jesus. And this is what we'll see with, with the new atheist movement is that people like Richard Dawkins will say, how do we know that Jesus even existed? And yet those men know more of the Bible than a lot of people that warm the pews on Sunday. It's one thing to know the Scripture academically, to to master it from a scholarship standpoint. But as Christians, we come to the Word of God and submit to it to be mastered by it. And when we do that, our very soul will be moved. Daniel postures himself in a place of brokenness, and, and before the Lord and conviction, it's humility. It's a position of humility. I think there's something else that we can see in Daniel's plea. Uh, he pleads for mercy in this moment. And I think this is important because if you, I don't know if you've ever heard this, the, the phrase, uh, preach the gospel to yourself or 
we use this around here a lot. That's a gospel-centered person, or we're a gospel-centered church, or that's a gospel-driven man. This is what gospel-driven people do. Gospel-driven people, people never take for granted the mercy of God. They never grow weary or tired of pleading with God for his mercy, but they do so out of the depth and richness of a relationship that we've been brought into with the holy God. Presumption is probably the biggest danger that most church-going Christians face. We presume on the kindness of God. We presume on the doctrine of eternal security. We presume on, well, I said a prayer, I got saved, and so we just kind of if we're not careful, we just waltz up to God in conversation when the reality is he is almighty God, righteous and sinless, holy in every way, literally unable to be approached because of his radiant holiness and glory. And Daniel remembers that. Daniel communes with him as, as a man would speak with a friend, and yet he pleads with God for his mercy. God has always shown Daniel mercy, but he still appreciates his need for mercy, and he appreciates God's ability and willingness to extend it. I think that's the key. He pleads for mercy, listen, knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's going to receive it. That is, a, that is a depth of maturity in a relationship. When you plea from the depths of your soul for something you already know is waiting for you. Think about that. Let that let that sink in because that, that tends, that's kind of contrary to human thinking. Why would I plead for something that I already have, right? Like I hope and plead and pray that my bed is there when I get there tonight. Like I know it's there, but I still appreciate it. You know, like, uh, like uh, do you have those nights where you drop into the, into the bed so exhausted and you go, I know I've slept in this thing 5,000 times nights you know but man it feels good right now like oh, or or just I just want to get to my bed you know I just want to crawl into that thing and, and and curl up and go to sleep and there's this longing to be in the presence of God and to receive his mercy and we know we're going to receive it but as Christians we should long for it that's what it is to be a gospel-centered person that every day in light of the righteousness of God this is why Paul will write in Romans 12 that familiar passage of scripture in view of the mercies of God in view of of his mercies. Let's live as sacrifices unto the Lord. And so Daniel's going to then pray, and I'm going to read the entire prayer. This is, this is something that we, we could literally do the whole, as much time as we spend studying through the book of Daniel, we could spend studying through the prayer and break it down. There's so many cool components, but I'm going to encourage you to spend time in it this week and then take it as far as you want to in terms of personal study. We're going to pray. We're going to read through it as Daniel would have prayed it. And then we're going to just look at a couple of um, points from the prayer. So verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to, to us open shame as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. 
To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God having been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing up by bringing upon us a great calamity for under the whole heaven there is there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem as it is written in the law of Moses all this calamity has come upon us yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh, my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. What a prayer. What an incredible, incredible depth of theology in terms of who God is and who we are. So I want to unpack the prayer, not line by line. We don't have time to do that in the time we've got tonight. But I want to, I want to break it down into two components. And I want to look at the prayer of confession and the prayer of petition. So the first part of this is a prayer of confession. Then there's a prayer of petition. Now, when we talk about uh, confession, we tend to think of confession as confessing our sins to God. Um, we admit that we've done something wrong. We, we express to God some wrongdoing or failure, or we confess to God that we've done something wrong to someone else. But confession is not only the confession or the ad admittance of my sin or my shortcoming, although that's part of it. It's also the declaration of who God is. So if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, that's confession. Okay, so confession is not just, Lord, I need to confess something to you, okay? So this would be, this, now in human interaction, this would be weird. You might, we, use that, we use that phrase, hey, I got to confess something to you. I ate the cookies. I got to confess something to you. I ate all three of those ice cream sandwiches that you had put in the freezer. I got to confess something to you. I know that there were nine donuts and now there are three. Like, I got to confess, right? We, like, we get that. But what, but what we don't do is we don't walk up and say, I have to confess something to you. I have to confess that you're very tall. 
I have to confess that you are brilliant. You know, like, well, we don't really use that terminology, but when we confess to God who he is, it's this sort of exaltation and exaltation and declaration of who he is. And so it's in, in Daniel's confession, we see both of these things. And I want to unpack briefly verses 4 and 5, which set up the next 10 or 11 verses of confession. In verse 4, we see the confession of who God is. So he begins with the confession of who God is, and then he goes to the confession of his own sin or the sin of his people. And this will be the pattern through the prayer. God, you are great. We are sinful. You are righteous. To us be shame and guilt. And so we see it in verse 4 and 5 in, a, in sort of a, a microcosm of what the rest of the prayer will be. In verse 4, he says, O Lord. And in Daniel chapter 9, this is the chapter where, God is, where, where Yahweh is referred to by name. In the book of Daniel, this prayer is when we begin to see, this is where Daniel is communicating with God on, like, by referring to him by his name. So, O oh Lord, if you look in your Bible and you see the word Lord in all caps, that's the, that's the translation for Yahweh, which was the name of God. So, O oh Lord, which in even saying the personal name of God, he's recognizing the sovereign creator who he worships. Then he says, you're great. How great is our God? Then he says, you're awesome. How awesome is our God? Then he says, then he makes reference to the, to the fact that God keeps covenant. This is important because we've talked before here at Red Oak about a contract is when two people enter into an agreement, but a covenant from God is when God brings us into an agreement that rests on his ability to keep and carry out the terms of the agreement. And so he's, he's, he's accepting and recognizing the authoritative covenant love of God to save us even and to keep us even in our own shortcoming. And then he says, and your steadfast love. Now, in verse 5 then, he confesses the other, on the other side, he confesses sin. He says, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We've turned aside from obeying your commands. And so then after he walks through this confession of who God is and this confession of man's sin, this begins to be the pattern of the prayer. So if like if you read verses 6 through 16, You'll see, we didn't listen. We ignored the voice of the Lord. We, um, we re- rejected consequence. We ignored God's word. Verse 8, everyone's guilty and responsible. Verse 9, we've rebelled against God. Verse 10, we didn't obey his word. Verse 11, we transgressed uh, the law and sinned against God. Verse 13, even under judgment, repentance has not come. Verse 14, we have not obeyed his voice. Verse 15, we have sinned and done wickedly. So he's, he's confessing sin, but watch this. He's using the word we. He's identifying with the kings of Israel and the leaders of a nation for sins that Daniel's not guilty of. He's calling out leaders for their failure in one sense, but he's identifying with them. It's a lesson in this. What we tend to do is we tend to separate ourselves from from sinners. And we pray for people from a position of condescension if we're not careful. Daniel's saying we because he recognizes that he is identified with sinners. But there's something else that's happening there. He's stepping into the role of intercessor. And we're going to see that a little later when we get into the petition portion of the prayer. So Daniel, who has, who is for us maybe the best example of what a godly person looks like, is saying we have done these things. We've sinned against you. 
And then in those same verses, particularly in 7 through 16, he then confesses, he continues on that pattern of confessing the righteousness and mercy and might of God. Verse 7, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. Verse 12, he has confirmed what he spoke. Verse 14, the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done. Verse 16, O Lord, according to your righteous acts. I want you to consider in that we the humility of Daniel. The first thing is that he refused to have a victim mentality. Daniel did not have a victim's mentality. He refused to do it. If anybody has ever been wronged, we can make a case for Daniel being wronged. He's being punished for 490 years of the sin of his ancestors, but he refuses to see himself as a victim. He sees himself in and through the lens of the righteousness of God. He also refused to have a sense of entitlement. Repentance for himself and for others is what comes through in his prayer. Not only does Daniel not make excuses, but he takes responsibility for the things that he's not guilty of. Daniel's done nothing wrong. He's a picture of what a godly man is to be. After our study, at this point, most of us would certainly agree that he's a clear, as clear a picture of human godliness as, as we have ever seen. This is one of those moments where Daniel's pointing us to Jesus and the gospel is shining through. Paul writes to the Corinthians that for our sake, God made sinless Jesus to become sin for us so that we might receive his righteousness. You see, what Daniel's doing in this prayer is he is showing us a picture of Christ who for our sake became sin, though he had known no sin. Jesus was sinless and spotless and without blame, and yet he died in our place, bearing the wrath of God, literally identifying with us in every way. Daniel is a picture of Christ. So he doesn't just pray a prayer of confession, he prays a prayer of petition, and that begins in verse 16, and he he starts in verse 16 by pleading with God that he would restore his city, Jerusalem, because the city, Jerusalem, was the holy city of God. It was from that city that the Israelites identified the central presence of God in their kingdom. It was the center place of worship. It was the center place of prophecy. It was the central place of the throne of Israel. It represented so much in Israel going, literally going all the way back to the time of Abraham. And and, and in Jerusalem, were identified and associated the promises of God, the covenants of God. Daniel, every day, remember in the story of the den of lions that Daniel would face Jerusalem every day and pray toward that city. And this is part of what he would pray. God, return us to that city. God's going to answer his prayer. And Daniel's excited because he's reading in Jeremiah 29. Remember, he's, all this is triggered from him reading in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah saying, after 70 years, you can go back to Jerusalem. But y'all think about this. It doesn't look the way Daniel probably thought it was going to look because they didn't roll back down to Jerusalem, have a king set up on the throne and become a, a, a powerful nation. They remained in captivity. But where was the launch of the spread of the gospel in the early church? From Jerusalem. And so he brings the people in answering the prayers of Daniel and and fulfilling the prophecies of Jeremiah. He brings Israel back into Jerusalem, reestablishes them, but keeps them under the rule of pagan and secular empires. And we saw this back in chapter 2 through the vision, looking down through history at how the gospel would spread. And then it was from Jerusalem that the gospel goes out in the book of Acts. And so Daniel's prayers answered, but probably not exactly the way Daniel would have envisioned 
In verses 17 through 19, this is really, I think, helpful to consider. He doesn't appeal to God on the grounds of human obedience, but he appeals to God on the grounds of God's righteousness. In fact, he distinguishes. We, I'm not asking you to heal us, heal our land. I'm not asking you to take us back to Jerusalem because we've done our part. I'm not saying to you, God, let's, okay, we're finally able to come to the negotiating table because we've obeyed you. In fact, he points out, God, one of the sins that we've committed is that we've not obeyed your word and we've not responded to your judgment in humility and submission. And so I don't plead with you on the grounds of our obedience or faithfulness. I plead with you on the grounds of your righteousness and your faithfulness to the promises you made through Jeremiah. He appeals to God based on what he knows to be true of God. He grounds his petition in God's righteousness. We need the mercy of God. We need to pray for it and seek it. And we need to worship God because of who he is and what he's done. We need to be people who also recognize our sin and the reality that sin is what stands between us and God. And as such, we need to be reminded that we have a better intercessor than Daniel. Jesus is the one who stands before us. Consider Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And consider Romans 8.34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Jesus doesn't just intercede for us. He intercedes for us continually. In fact, think about this. Somehow, this is where we can, we can lose our minds trying to wrap them around this depth of truth. As we enter into the study of a passage of Scripture that Daniel entered into 2,500 years ago, as we enter into that, Jesus is interceding for us right now on behalf of you and I before the Father. Continually, he intercedes for us. We have an advocate with the Father. When you feel alone, Jesus is interceding for you. When you feel like nobody else understands, Jesus is interceding for you. Literally, he makes intercession for you. Jesus is with us, interceding for us constantly. Verse 20, something really cool happens. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my, my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So, um, a- angel shows up. That's cool. Uh, so, you're praying. Some of you might think, I just wish God would speak to me more often, like have a, da- you know, have a Daniel experience. Angel shows up. This is pretty cool. But what's interesting to me, what jumped out at me this week when I was reading this is Daniel's like, he recognizes him. Like, this is not, like, Daniel's been here before, you know? Like, what an incredible thing to think. You know, if, if usually when an angel shows up, people freak out. Gabriel, show, and, and we see this throughout the Old Testament when, like, an angel of the Lord will show up, people freak out. They, they think of the shepherds even at the birth of Jesus. They're, they're incredibly afraid. Gabriel shows up, and Daniel's like, knuckles, you know, like, hey, what's up? What's going on now? You know, I was just, hey, I was just talking to your boss man, you know, like, like what does this look like? And so um, Gabriel shows up, but look at, look at what happens in the interaction between Gabriel and Daniel. He made me understand 
speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So he says, verse 23 is the key verse here. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy. When did Daniel plead for mercy? Verse 3, right? Back to verse, he started the prayer. So he, he says this incredible prayer. Now, I don't know how long it takes for Gabriel to get from wherever he's at to standing beside Daniel, but as long as it took me to pray that prayer a while ago. And he, he could have been there quicker, but he let Daniel finish the prayer, right? I, like, like the point being that God responded the moment that, go back to where we were talking earlier, a gospel-centered man or woman pleads for the mercy of God in their life every day. And God responds to that. God acts and moves in response to that. As he was pleading for that, God responds to that. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I've come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Four, now think about this. I want you to think about this. Gabriel's not showing up to Daniel at this point because the proper amount of time has passed of 70 years. The four tells us why Gabriel's here in this time at this place. For you are greatly loved. Greatly loved. After everything Daniel's been through, what a, an incredible encouragement and reminder. Snatched from his family home as a young teenager. Castrated before he was old enough to even marry. Brainwashed and re-educated at the University of Babylon. Immersed into the demonic black arts. Tortured beaten, imprisoned. We don't know what all happened along the way, but God's favor was continually with Daniel. Daniel remained obedient. Daniel remained, re remained obedient. Daniel remained steadfast. And after eight decades, seven or eight decades that have now passed, Daniel was reminded that God loves you. And I think it's important for us to be reminded that the love of God in our lives does not rest on the easiness of your circumstances. There's a really dangerous teaching in the world right now that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't have to face hardship. You shouldn't have to face poverty or sickness or difficulty. And the reality is that when we face those things, we need to be reminded that we are greatly loved. God loves us. He loves us. Think about the description of God's love in the Jesus Storybook Bible that so many of us are familiar with from our children's ministry and from Pinwell and from reading to our own kids. I, don't, I can't say it. I haven't memorized it, but it's that long sentence, a never-stopping, never-ending, never-giving-up love. It's a beautiful description of love. Daniel, you're greatly loved. Uh, Daniel, I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you something. You prayed, asked for mercy. I'm here to tell you a couple things. I'm here to remind you that that mercy is yours. And I'm here to tell you that you're greatly loved. Daniel's friends are all dead. He's, he's outlived his homeland and uh, the Babylonian empire that he grew to love in one sense. And the angel shows up and says, you're greatly loved. Such a neat moment. In verse 24, 
close our time. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish a transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squires and moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Woo! We were just talking about prayers and angels and being loved and stuff. And I don't know what to tell y'all about that. <laughs> Somebody's like, I know what it means. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> just don't. Don't say, don't say it out loud, okay? Don't get to, don't get to community group or uh, discipleship group this week and go, um, I, I, I think I know what, uh, you don't know what it means. We don't know what it means, okay? But we do know there, there are things that we can understand. And, and seriously, in all seriousness, historians and commentators and theologians wrestle with these things and struggle with these things. And we've talked over the last couple of weeks about, uh, you know, apocalyptic literature and prophetic literature and the scripture. And we've learned a lot about it. But listen to what David Helm says, which I appreciate that commentary that a lot of you have grabbed and are using. The main point of these verses that we should hold on to is this. When Daniel petitioned to God to make an end of the 70 years of exile, the word he received was that it would take another 70 sets of seven before a complete deliverance would be made. In other words, God wanted Daniel and all of Israel to know that getting home from Babylon was not as straightforward as Jeremiah's vision might have made it seem. Israel would return to the land under the proclamation of King Cyrus, but God's complete work of salvation would not come until Jesus entered into the world. Seventy sets of seven is a period of time and a reference to a period of time that we just can't be sure of. God desired out of a love for Daniel to pull back the curtain on Israel and their return to the land, but he wanted him to see the backstage, as it were, and to glimpse the larger drama of complete reconciliation between God and man. In other words, Red Oak, the ultimate unfolding of Scripture points us to Jesus. It points us to the redemptive story that Jesus is bringing salvation into the world. Consider what's laid out in verse 24. 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. What is the decree? Here's the decree to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. That's the ultimate goal that God has, and he will accomplish that goal. He will bring a final and complete end to transgression. He will bring an end to injustice. He will establish an eternal, perpetual kingdom of perfection and he will sit on the throne and he will wipe the tears from our eyes and he will wrong every right and he will be our God and we will be his people. Takeaways, prayer of Daniel is a powerful example of what it looks like to appeal to the grace and mercy and kindness of God but also stand in fear before the righteous judge of the earth. This is important. One mistake is to focus on the judgment of God. Think about this through the prayer of Daniel. 
It's a good quiz I took for myself this week. Do I tend to pray more towards emphasis on the focus being on the righteousness and judgment of God and not and, uh, uh, to focus on the judgment of God and not appeal to the mercies of God and appeal to, uh, on others' behalf of the mercies of God? It's also dangerous to only think about the kindness and mercy of the Lord. And maybe that's the direction some of us lean. We, we, we appeal, like we love to think about the mercy of God and the goodness of God and the long-suffering of God, but we have to see these two pictures together. We have to consider the fact that he's a righteous judge who has demanded the blood of his own son for the forgiveness of our sin, but he's provided that out of his mercy and his grace. He is both just and the justifier. He's made a way. Lessons from Daniel, surround yourself by godly folks who are like-minded. We saw it throughout Daniel's life. He's a man who's ultimately committed to the study of God's word. He's a man committed to fasting and praying, and in all circumstances, and at any time and in any situation, he goes before the Lord, and he listens expecting to hear from God. Let's listen expecting to hear from God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you take uh, the prayer of Daniel, and the vision of Daniel and the life of Daniel and continue to teach and, and, and grow and bless our church. We pray that we would be receptive and responsive to the hearing of your word. That we might even, even as Daniel was reading your word and then he responded in prayer and worship, that we might now respond to you in worship through song. I pray that there would be a response in our hearts that is stirred by your spirit to recognize you for who you are as almighty God, righteous in all your ways, and to see us, to see ourselves individually and corporately as a church, to see our need for your righteousness and your sustaining grace and your sustaining mercy, and to, to be men and women of humility who come before the throne of God into your presence, asking you every day for what we know you're going to give us, sustaining grace, sustaining mercy, conviction of sin, an awareness of your presence. But I pray that we would, in humility, come before you seeking it. And we do that tonight, corporately. We ask you to continue to bless our church and the lives of the individuals here. I'm going to sing now in response to the hearing of your word, songs of worship, and I pray that you would receive them as a gift in Jesus' name. Amen.